Hello, my friends, and welcome to this edition of the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen P. Wood. I'm an acute care NP and fellow of extreme and wilderness medicine at the World Extreme Medicine Program. I'm so glad you've chosen us as your source of wilderness and extreme medicine education. It's people like you that keep us doing what we do and to deliver you the best content in wilderness and extreme medical education. I'm excited today to introduce today's guest, Julie Rack. Julie is the Henry Marshall Chair in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta, Canada, and she's the author of False Summit, Gender and Mountaineering Nonfiction, among several other texts as well. Um, When she's not writing or teaching, she can be found hiking and camping in the Canadian Rockies of Alberta. Welcome, Julie. Well, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Great. And, you know, I'm I'm a big... Uh, Canada enthusiast. I live in New England, and so um, uh, I've been to Quebec and Montreal, uh, among others. I've been to Toronto, which is, I think, really an American city for the most part. Um, But uh, I've never been to Alberta. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, I've never been to Alberta. Tell me what what uh, what do you enjoy about Alberta? What what brings you there to Alberta, and what keeps you there? Well. Um, it, I really uh, am there because I got a job years ago as a professor at the University of Alberta, so I am there for work. Um, but one of the things that I really love about Alberta is that um, my city where I live is near the mountains, but it's not too close. And so what that means is that, you know, you can I can see some of the most famous mountaineering landscapes in the world, like in climbing and camping and all those things. I live near one of the best ice climbing regions in the world, but I don't have to live right next to it. And the reason why is that we would overlove it if we were too close. You know, it's it's important that there's a little distance and so that we have to be intentional about being there. Uh, so that's, uh, that's really one of the most wonderful things. And then, of course, we have uh, some amazing parks that feature uh, dinosaur remains. Uh, we have a mini Grand Canyon in Alberta. So, you know, there's, those are things, it's really our natural uh, world that I think is outstanding, is really splendid. Well, you've sold me. I definitely will make, put that on my agenda. <laughs> Especially the and dinosaur. You know, you can yeah. Exactly. And, you know, you can, you can do all the wilderness things, but you can also get a cup of very fine coffee. So, I mean, really, it's all a win. It's a win-win situation for sure. Well, yeah. I'm sure I will. I'll make my way out there. I'm sure many of our guests will want to as well. But mm-hmm. we're here to more talk about what I think is a really important topic, and I'm very appreciative to have you on uh, to to talk mm-hmm. to about us, uh, talk with us about this today. Um, I wanted to just go back and talk a little bit about your book, and you uh, just finished False Summit: Gender and Mountaineering mm-hmm. Nonfiction. And it really kind of is a a look at kind of gender issues in mountaineering. So I'm going to let you go from there. Um, What was your inspiration for this book? And what can you tell us about this topic? Well, the inspiration I actually write about right at the end. And and that's partly because, um, you know, I always am thinking, what is a good conclusion? I feel like if you've read the book, you don't need it. But, you know, I thought, what am I going to do? And I talked about why. And it was because years and years ago, I was doing um, a mountaineering crevasse rescue refresher. It's quite, a, you know, you have to keep your skills up for that kind of stuff as you know much more about than I do. And when I was doing that, 
I noticed that the female instructor was being treated really badly by the male instructors. And she actually was a better climber than they were. And she had ideas about what to do and what we were going to do next. And they would just dismiss her. And I had that experience myself when I was learning how to climb many years ago. And I remember very distinctly standing there and thinking, I need to figure this out. <laughs> I need to understand why this is happening. It was the 1990s. I need to figure out why this is happening. And the way to do that is to read some of the really famous stories about mountain climbing, mountain accidents, all those things, because those are ways that mountaineers use, whether they are amateur climbers or whether they are professional climbers, to learn about climbing. And so they are a source of education, but they're also um, sometimes a source of misinformation. So I decided to understand more fully what those stories were about. And that is really the beginning of Fall Summit a long time ago. It took me a long time to do. And I'm very glad that it took a long time because the world changed as I was writing. And one of the things that became very important was the aftermath of the American originated Black Lives Matter, which has a worldwide it has worldwide effects. And uh, there were calls as I was writing to make climbing more diverse in a lot of different kinds of ways, not just in terms of what Black Lives Matter is doing, but other ways. And I think I was able to join that movement as part of the work that I did. So I'm really glad it took a while, but that's really what happened. I was back there standing in a snowbank thinking, what should I be doing? Hmm. <laughs> that's really it. <laughs> it's those kind of moments that, that, bring forward that kind of change. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you had that opportunity, not for that, mm -hmm. that poor young woman who I'm sure, you know, was yeah. just as expert as the rest of her colleagues. Um, but we see this so many times, we see this in every, every aspect of life, um, especially mm -hmm. we see this in medicine. And that's been a big issue, you know, in medicine, particularly in the field I'm in, which is emergency medicine, which has always mm -hmm. been very male dominated. Um, and yeah. I, you know, work alongside some of the, the best female, you know, physicians and providers uh, who almost always routinely get called the nurse, um, regardless of their yep. uh, position. And, um, right. you know, it, it's an unfortunate piece. So, you know, you we, we don't hear much about, um, you know, female uh, mountaineering um, individuals or female climbers. In fact, mm -hmm. my wife and I were just watching The Alpinist, which is about Matthew LeClaire. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's you know his girlfriend was also in the film, um, and they made you know uh, they they obviously they talked a lot about Matthew and his climbing, but she was almost as expert, if not as much an expert, and it's just mm -hmm. interesting to me because I had already set this interview up to watch that happen in front of us, saying, "Well, here's this woman who's also equally skilled, and there's no you know no one's really focusing on on." You know, mm -hmm. her expertise and they showed her alongside him the whole way uh, for many of his hikes. And it just was really interesting to me, mm -hmm. especially having had just set this up to see that yep. in action. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sad you had to watch that unfold in real time and I'm unsurprised. So you asked what the argument was of the book and what it is, is that it's not just a replacement history. So we have a lot of those. So we have people who have done a lot of work to say, hey, there were famous female climbers in the past, you know, and, and we need to remember them and we need to say that they are, they should be part of climbing history. 
right? And, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, except that it doesn't make anything change because it doesn't ask about what is the gender of any climber? What does a climber have to be in order to be successful? And that what that meant was that you kind of have the, well, it's like the Margaret Thatcher effect, you know, where just because you have a woman in charge of a country doesn't mean that she's different from the men before her. Um, and she was, she was called the Iron Lady because she actually acted like male politicians in the Conservative Party of Britain. So she, she wasn't that different in that sense. And so what have you really accomplished? And the same thing happens in mountaineering where there's very narrow ideas in the in the elite climbing world. There's very narrow ideas of what success is. There's very narrow ideas of what risk is. Um, there's not uh, a whole lot of room to be different or have a different kind of body. And so I made a theory of gender for climbing that included ideas about what the body is and that it does matter. We all have gender. It's not just women inserted into what's there already. We have to actually be thoughtful about men too, that there's different kinds of climbers. They come from different places all around the world. There isn't just one way to climb something. And uh, that was really the intent of the book to make us more aware of that and think about alternatives. And there are a lot of alternatives, as it turns out, already out there. That's interesting. Can you tell tell us tell us more? What are what are some of the alternatives that are that are available? Um, one thing I think um, and I about this is that um, somebody like Junko Tabe, who is the first female climber to summit Mount Everest, when at the time when this was a unique achievement right in the 1970s. Um, she was from Japan and she was routinely in the press called a Japanese housewife, which not only was untrue because she wasn't a housewife, actually her husband looked after the kids while she went out to do some of these things. So if anything, it's him, you know, not her, right. but the, yeah, but uh, he was very supportive of her and also an excellent climber in his own right. Right. So, but she wasn't that. And the other thing is this was a way to demean her or make her achievement look really false. And in fact, her story did not come out in English until just a couple of years ago. It turns out she was caught in an avalanche. She had a fall. She almost died on Everest. And then she picked herself up and literally did that thing. Like, it's really important to know um, what she was and that she also founded Women's Climbing in Japan and she really supported it. She also worked with youth who had PTSD from the tsunami that hit Japan um, in the 2000s and, and actually took them climbing as a way to help them recover. So she had, and she did a lot of ecological work. So her understanding of herself as a climber was not just, I'm going to climb the highest thing and I don't, you know, and that's my career. She had a much more holistic uh, way of understanding that. And she also was really interested in making sure that climbers from around the world who no one had heard of got their fair due. So um, an example, there are two examples that are important. One is she got interested in a woman who summited Everest just after she did, whose name was always in the records, Mrs. Fantog, and that she climbed for China and was Tibetan. Mrs. Fantog. I spent years trying to figure out who this was. And I finally realized that it was a misnomer and that this is actually Panduo, who is uh, a Chinese climber. She's not Tibetan. 
and she climbed for China um, in the in those years. And because she her works were never talked about in English, she actually almost became the first person to ascend Everest without oxygen. But she was made to have oxygen for five minutes before she topped out. And if she hadn't done that, she would have actually beat Reinhold Messner by decades, right? So, I mean, this is important. And nobody knew who she was. And and Junko Tabe actually did a lot to befriend her and make sure that other people knew about her. And to me, that's a really important way to be a climber too, to bring other people with you. Um, and the last is Lydia Brady, who's from New Zealand, very famously tried to climb Everest unassisted. Her male Climbing team partners disparaged her and and actually cast aspersion on her achievements, said she hadn't really done it. And Junko Tabe invited her to Japan to tell her story to the Japanese climbing community so that that record would be there. So to me, that's another way to be a climber. You do something with your ascent that helps other people and, and it works for equity. So to me, that's a good example of that. It's not the only one. There's lots and lots of other ways that people climb uh, and don't just single-mindedly do the thing that could possibly kill them, which is often what the, what the paradigm says you should be doing to be any good. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, certainly these aren't household names. Uh, you know, we, you know, we think of Mesner and, and others and their, you know, their household mm -hmm. names in the mountaineering and, uh, you know, community um, hopefully that will change. Uh, my hope is yeah. that you know your kind of work and 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 their kind of work brings that out because you know, it makes me think about. I don't know how well you're an English teacher. I'm going to guess potentially you watch Jeopardy. Um, oh yeah. Well, uh, sure. Alex Trebek is Canadian too. Canadian, I just want to yeah. get that out there. <laughs> the greatest treasure. He was. He was. Yeah. He was. And you know, I uh, Amy Schneider, who just you know was uh, on and and won forty you know consecutive games. It always pre was preceded by you know transgender person, and it's yep. really unfortunate. It, it's wonderful that that she was able to say that and to bring that out and to kind of unite that community a little bit. But also, why does that even matter? It's mm -hmm. she was one of the the best players they've ever had, um, and it mm -hmm. just should be. Amy Schneider, you know, doing yeah. doing uh, this work, and yeah. and similarly, I think we're you're seeing this, you know, what you're discussing here in the mountaineering mm -hmm. community, is that we're identifying them as a separate group, and it almost it's diminishing in a way to just say, you know, they're a female climber as if there's a difference. Yeah, and there can be. I mean, I think there's two ways to think about that. One is that um, is that. Yeah, in Jeopardy, it's not going to matter whether you're trans or not, unless there's a trans unless there's a trans category. She's probably going to smash it, right? Or they're going right. to smash it. So <laughs> she smashed every category. Important. Yeah, so it, pretty I, much. Yeah. yeah, yeah, pretty much. She should, you know, they should be hosting that. But I think also um, what is important is to think if you're going to identify a group, then what are you identifying? So what I mean by that is, um, so there's the problem of you know the Olympics is coming up. You know, we've got skiing and then we have women's skiing or we have hockey and men's hockey, you know, we, or women's hockey rather. So we have this kind of, that's a demeaning thing to do, to say these are different. But what I think can happen is, um, and this happens particularly with the 8,000 meter peaks, is that sometimes people had to climb a mountain to even get to the mountain. So there are cases, um, I'm reading right now, um, Nimstai Purja's Beyond Possible, which is about 
um, the fact that he is a he is a Gurkha soldier and is from Nepal. But it was almost impossible for him to try to break the speed record for ascending all of the 8,000 meter peaks. He did it in seven, like less than seven months when the previous record was seven years. And so he details in his book how difficult this was to be able to even get permission, to be able to convince people that someone Nepalese could do it, even though it's his backyard, to be, you know, all of these kinds of things. So sometimes it does matter if you are the first someone, right? Um, you know, because I think this is about your life story to get to what you're doing, not just the actual thing on the peak. And, and I think those stories are interesting too. So I think sometimes it does matter. Um, but I would think that um, for, some, for some kinds of firsts, it doesn't really matter at all, right? Um, you know, right. Think about female climbers who have been the first to do um, any kind of thing like free the nose, for instance, uh, you know, in uh, the Tetons, I think it is, or it's uh, to be able to do those things is um, an achievement in its own right, obviously. Sure, sure. I mean, it, and this may sound like a silly question, but I have to imagine equipment as well is also yep. different, is the availability of equipment. You know, can you speak to, to that at all about, yeah. you know, kind of equality? In I that love regard? this question. No one asked Great. me this. <clears throat> and now I've done that for the editing. <laughs> I, yeah. I love this question. It, it's such a good question because it is important. Uh, so in the early years of mountaineering, and there were female climbers who were in Europe, who were trying to do things like Ascend Mont Blanc or something like that, um, the, the clothes they had to wear um, went a long way towards making it more difficult for them. So it's quite, some women were quite famous for wearing a skirt to the crag and then taking it off and hiding it. Um, there was even one climber who made a drawstring so she could just pull it up over her waist so she could climb and then she could let it down if anyone came near her. So, you know, this, it's an example of how difficult that was. And early equipment was heavier. Uh, you know, things were made of wool. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, the tents were really heavy. This is one reason why there was so much Sherpa support because it was literally difficult to bring everything, um, you know. And so the advent of alpine mountaineering, which occurred in the 1970s, it first starts about this point and it really changes the style of climbing, particularly in the Himalayas and the Karakoram, um, to bring alpine techniques to those mountains. It was made possible by lighter and better equipment. And that also meant that more women were able to do it. And so it's just a simple physical thing. You know, once you made design a little better, people change. It's like you've made better skis. Look at that. <laughs> people start to do different things on their skis. And so that's, that's what, ha that is partly what happened. Uh, there have been some physiological studies that have indicated that women are actually better high altitude uh, climbers than men are too. Um, and that's partly just because of our physiology. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting thing that no one ever thinks about. Usually, you know, it's assumed men are always better because they're stronger, but stronger isn't always better in the mountains. Um, it's also important to do things like think ahead, to be impervious to cold. There's all sorts of reasons why some climbers are more successful than others. Sometimes climbing slowly is better than quickly. So there's all sorts of things that aren't just about brute strength and speed. So I think that's important too, but the, the equipment is huge. 
uh, and I'm really glad that you mentioned it. There's some excellent books about equipment and how equipment has changed through the years. Uh, the development of the bicycle, for example, <laughs> was really important because it created um, the need for different kinds of clothing that were that were lighter, better at uh, deflecting wind, all that kind of stuff. There were all sorts of reasons uh, why um, making things lighter, faster, more efficient, um, making oxygen canisters easier to handle, for example, all of those things contribute to the entrance of women into climbing. But the men who were there already didn't always like that they were there. So you have um, some backlash stuff that happens. Um, one of the most famous examples of it is the use of the phrase brotherhood of the rope for climbs on K2 um, starting in the 1950s. It sounds like such a good idea. You know, you're all on a rope together and you're linked. And I mean, we've all had this experience. Those of us who climb, you're absolutely tied to that other person or people. And you have to, and you have to be aware of them always and you become a team. But, um, you know, Charlie Houston, who was, uh, who was the leader of the American team that first attempted K2, who went back to K2, was never successful um, at climbing it. He was uh, responsible for popularizing the phrase and other members of his team as well. And it sounds great, doesn't it? You know, that, that, male, that men on there, they can, they can be there for each other and they'll do anything for each other and they'll save each other. It's like the highest ideals of climbing ever. And uh, in fact, there's uh, the Brotherhood of the Rope was in um, uh, Gaston Rebuffat's uh, climbing guide called Starlight and Storm. And he's probably the first person to mention it as an idea. And he's very eloquent about how it works but it's only for men. So what happens is the brotherhood of the rope becomes a way to say that women can't be there. And it becomes a way to say, this is our rope, not your rope. This is our brotherhood. You're in the way. You're somehow in the way of our male bonding. And there's a lot of, um, you know, notions around that, that we could, we could think about, what do you mean? <laughs> How can women be an interruption? But they were routinely discussed this way up until the 1990s. Uh, particularly on more difficult peaks. And there were people who really ran into some problems because of the Brotherhood of the Rope being treated that way. So, you know, that's a good example of an idea that worked to actually physically exclude women from using a rope, for instance, or, or from leading. It was assumed women couldn't lead, even though there was no evidence that they couldn't. Right. And uh, there was, uh, and there, there were uh, Marion Underhill, was an American climber, famously invented the idea of the manless climb <laughs> in the 1920s as a way, climbing manless as a way to say, you know, we have our own rope, the Corday Feminine, but um, that did not catch on. So that's a good example sure. of how those things can exclude when they should. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting how just the simple phrasing and wording of that. Mm -hmm. is meant to be exclusionary yep. and uh oh, yeah. that's it's unfortunate well i'm glad i asked that question because um, <laughs> that uh yeah that was a really excellent answer to that um so what do you feel then what are what are the biggest barriers to changing this um is it just the community itself or what is mm. you know kind of the biggest barrier to change with regard to gender inequity in mountaineering and how how can we maybe overcome that what is the biggest barrier um I think there's more than one. The reason why the book is called False Summit is because a false summit means two things. It means to think you've arrived when you haven't arrived, right? You get to the top, hooray! Uh, <laughs> and that's sort of how gender works in mountaineering. 
<laughs> and, and then the other thing that can happen is that it can be about mountains that are misidentified in the record. And, you know, so, you know, somebody claims they're much higher than they really are, or that a mountain's there and they climbed it and they were the first summiter, but there was never anything there, you know? And right. so it can mean both things. Uh, and I think that the first thing to do, I think, is to clear away the notion of achievement being so narrow. Um, so the idea that you have to climb the most dangerous line to be the best climber in the world um, is like, for instance, the, there's a Japanese skier who skied down Everest. I mean, you know, and people said it was just a stunt ascent. It didn't mean anything. Oh, no, that's a big achievement. Right. <laughs> it's a really important thing to do. Yeah. Um, you know, it's dangerous, but, you know, this is somebody who is capable of doing it. And so to me, I think that's the first thing. We have to enlarge our idea of what being in the mountains is and what achievement is. Because I think if we do that, we not only eliminate the um, tendency in mountaineering to assume that, for instance, free soloing is the best thing. I mean, it's it kills a lot of people. Right. And, and is it really worth it? I mean, this is, a, a, I know a lot of people who've quit climbing because they just can't handle that kind of stuff. And so to my mind, that means that the story's too narrow. If you widen the story about what is what is an interesting thing to do in the mountains, what is it, for instance, is it climbing in an ecological way? Is it climbing and bringing people who are unlikely with you? Is there some other way of understanding the mountains as, as an environment that can take that kind of narrow idea of achievement out? You will find all kinds of people climbing. Um, a good example for me is always Tenzing Norgay gets to the top of Everest, right? And he looks out and here's, you know, Sir Edmund Hillary, who's not Sir yet, He's up there and he's thinking about Mallory and how could Mallory have got there? And he's looking around for him and he doesn't see him. Uh, but that's not what, that's not what Tenzing Norgay does. He looks down at his hometown and he thinks about the mountain like a mother hen and the other mountains are like chicks all around. He doesn't think that it's a really tough, horrible environment. He thinks of it as he calls it warm, friendly and living. And to me, that's a different way to understand the mountains. So why don't we have more ideas like that that could change some of the ways that we're using the mountains as opposed to being in them? So to me, that's one really important thing. And I would say another thing is that gender equity never comes unless the people who are in power let go of some of it. And that's the hardest thing. And that's true also of other things like racism or transphobia. The people who have, who hold the power need to let go. And so what that, I think that means is that, um, you know, the mountaineering has been so male dominant, but it's also about a certain kind of masculinity. It's like, there's a lot of guys who think they can't measure up to that either. Right. Um, who, you know, because it's an impossible ideal. Um, and that's the whole point. It's, only Mallory was perfect and he died, <laughs> you <Right>. know, <laughs> he's the perfect one. No one's ever going to be more perfect than that guy. Right. So give up <laughs> on that. Right. And right. just, you know, and so, and so I think that, that some of these guys who were really intent on this heroic solo image of climbing need to kind of sit the hell down. And this happened in the 1970s. A lot of Alpine climbing was about letting go of some of those military ideals and that was a good thing it brought a lot of different kinds of people into the mountains and it changed a lot of things and I think that same kind of thing has to happen so it's not just 
women coming in and going, yeah, or trans people, whatever, coming in and going, we're going to climb our way. It's also rethinking what you think this is about. And I think that's, that's a lot of work to do, but that's a lot of mountaineering is about imagination. A lot of it is about stories. We could change those. So, no, that's, you know, hopefully that's, that's a good enough answer. I don't know. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and uh, it's important. I mean, we all, uh, you bring up even just some very good points about just how we look at ourselves and our experience, you know, in the mountains. Um, you know, I used to do a lot of uh, winter hiking, winter camping, and mm, used to try to minimize you. and try to tough things out. It's like, well, that's yeah. crazy. Why, why should I be more uncomfortable than I have to? Um, <laughs> right? uh, you know, just why, why, why should I do that? The, the other piece of it is, is that, you know, uh, as we get older and slower, mm-hmm. um, yep. you know, I, I, you know, the last few hikes I've done, um, you know, definitely wasn't in as good of shape as I had hoped to be. And people are passing mm-hmm. me by. And I was really bad about it at first. And I was like, well, no, I mean, we all have our time. I'm just spending more time with this mountain than, than those folks will be, um, is the way I look at it. It's mainly because I was slow, but uh, at the same time, um, yeah, you have to come to those, uh, you know, you, you come to those realizations that things change and times change. It's, you know, I don't mean to diminish the, uh, you know, gender equity in, in that, but, that's where I think we need to think of it that way as well, which is that times have to change, things have to change and we all get something different from what this experience is. And it doesn't have to be, you know, climbing without oxygen or, you know, getting to a point A to from point A to point B in any kind of speed record. It's enjoying the experience and enjoying the mountain. And we're all there for a different reason. Yeah, and I I think that the to sum, what you're saying is excellent. And to sum up for me, it would be instead of gender equity, what about gender diversity? Like what are and what about thinking there's more than one way to be somewhere? I would agree. One of the things about mountaineering is it's often talked about like it's a young person's game, and it kills a lot of people too. So you know, right. and so to my mind, what that means is that we haven't really thought very hard about what does it mean to be an older person in the mountains, for instance, or what does it mean to be in the mountains some other way? A lot of times you go on a trip and, you know, I remember doing this when I, you know, I'm a retired climber, obviously I'm older too, but when I, you go, you, you, you didn't expect to summit because something could happen. There could be an avalanche. There could be, there could be weather problems. I mean, half the time you're just looking there like, well, (laughs) You know, and, and so what that means is that you have to find other ways to be in the experience and enjoy the experience. And I have to agree, I don't I don't need to sleep on the cold ground anymore because I'm an older person. And there should always be, you know, room for the younger people to do the things that they really want to do and challenge themselves. But I do think there's a lot more diversity out there about how you do that than we imagine. And to my mind, yeah, like I've said, you do that and you can let the mountain change you a little, which is the story that you were telling, right? Because you were slower to encourage you though. I wish to give you the story of Kurt Deenberger. <laughs> he's a, he's a complex figure <laughs> in the history of K in, of K2 and of other mountains, uh, very high mountains. But what's interesting is he was part of the K2 disaster in the 1980s. In 1986, his own climbing partner, Julie Tullis, 
died um, in that disaster, but he lived. And one of the reasons why is that he and Julie um, were unusual climbers. Other people made fun of them. Other people were like, didn't understand their relationship. They had an equitable relationship as a climbing team from what I can see. And they, and they were unlikely, but they did have this. And one of the things that was really important is they didn't go quickly. And Kurt Deenberger in particular was older and he was not fast. And guess what? He lives, you know, and a lot of other people who were faster died and it's because he was slower. So he was more acclimatized and, you know, and he was able to survive that and get down. And that is, you know, old and slow, <laughs> beat young and fast. <laughs> right. And a lot of people who thought they were hot shots up there were not, you know, and it was a tragedy what happened. Uh, up there, right? And so I think I'm not advocating that you should go and, you know, make sure that you die because you're so slow or something. But it's it's more that he showed another way to do something. And the other climbers didn't necessarily understand and thought he would be unsuccessful. And he actually was successful. Makes so me I feel a lot better. Makes exactly. me feel a lot better about these things now. <laughs> <laughs> now I can just take my, my sweet time and uh, act like I'm not out of breath at a, at a much right. slower pace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're well, acclimatizing. That's right. I'm, acclim I'm acclimatizing. <laughs> right. Even though it's the White Mountains of New Hampshire and nothing's over yes. 6,000 feet, I still want to make sure they take that time to acclimatize. Exactly. Uh, acclimatize. Just, you know, and <laughs> that mountain hut's ahead of you and there might be a cup of tea at the top, but, you know, yeah, you're out there. Exactly. Well, I've, I've been there myself and I <laughs> I understand. So we, uh, we're coming close to our, our, our time. Uh, so what I want to end with is um, obviously you're a writer and I assume an avid reader. Uh, yeah. I'm going to add a new segment to my, to my uh, podcast here, which is, can you give us some, uh, some book suggestions? What would you suggest that people read uh, that, you know, might help us, uh, might enlighten us on this topic or it could be completely on another topic altogether, uh, you know, uh, but I'm interested to hear what your suggestions might be. Okay. Off the top of my head, um, but I'm, I'm not going to get all my titles right. I would say read Junko Tabe's memoir translated into English, um, which it's, it has the word high in it. All mountain memoirs do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's read that because I think it's really interesting. I think it's really well written. Uh, she worked with um, someone in Canmore in, in Alberta to help make it really read very well. And I think it's an excellent memoir. So that's the first thing. Um, I also think if you're interested in Everest, you do not have to read John Krakauer. So it's mm -hmm. gonna sound funny because his, his book is probably the best-selling mountaineering book of all time, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, but there's been a lot of other books um, that were written about that climb that are more interesting. I would say Bukriev's The Climb is Good. Um, but another is a memoir by a Danish climber. And I'm just going to check for the title here so that we have it. Mm, it's not good for your podcast. Um, so what I okay. would say is that uh, there's um, it's by Lena Gamelgaard and it's another account of climbing in during the 1996 disaster. Uh, but she did not climb that mountain the way that Krakauer did. She did not experience things the way that Krakauer did. 
Um, I also think Lou Kashiski, who is on Krakauer's team, wrote a memoir of the 96 disaster, which is very well written and was published very recently. Um, he published it after his wife died. He waited um, for quite a long time. And it actually provides you with um, an eloquent and thoughtful way of understanding climbing as a being about know, uh, your team and knowing when to turn around when things get difficult. And I think it should, it's not very well known and it should be because I think it's actually very good. Um, there's lots and lots of classics out there, right? Um, actually, I would say um, Conquistadors of the Useless by Lionel Terre, which has been translated into, is a classic, it's translated into English. I would still say that that is a great book even better than Starlight and Storm. And really, who doesn't like that title, Conquistadors of the Useless? <laughs> it's a great title. Yeah. That title alone is worth uh, purchasing that book and, and reading it for yeah. sure. For sure. If you're interested in the in the history of climbing in the Alps, um, there's, a, there's a book called Summits of Modern Man. And uh, I'm going to have to take a minute to remember it's peter hansen with an e h-a-n-s-e-n and that's actually a historical book about how mountaineering really comes to be and i think it's fascinating because it's about science the way it was understood in the 18th century and how science was and climbing came together and really become um part of this race for the peaks people climbed mountains at that point not for the achievement of it or for pleasure, they climb for science. And I think it's really interesting to read about how that created our idea of ourselves as modern people and, uh, and how it created ideas of what a man was, like what it is to be manly. And, uh, and I think that book is really articulate about that. So if you're interested in intellectual history, as opposed to just the adventure part, I'd go with that. Absolutely. Great. I'd, great. I'd still say Charlie Houston's um, Brotherhood of the Rope is a great account of what happened on K2 in the 1950s and the greatest mountaineering accident ever. It still reads like a gripping adventure story. I actually think it's pretty interesting too. So um, those are just a few. I would also want to advocate reading work by people who are not just white. So there's the brand new book just, uh, it's been re-released um, called Sherpa by Ang Tarke. Um, there's also an, um, other books out there. There's one called the, the Sherpas. There's a lot more work out there by Sherpa writers than there was. It's really important for two reasons. The first is that we tend to understand um, mountaineering narratives as being written by white European people, and they only have one story to tell really like they're they're you know that's going to be their perspective but if you really want to understand how mountaineering works read things by other people but they can be harder to find so sherp has been re-released and it's it's he is the contemporary just before actually of tenzing norgay and he has a really interesting view of what it was like to work with all those early exhibition expeditions same with tenzing norgay's book Man of Everest, that is a great book. It's better than Edmund Hillary's. Sorry, sorry about it, Edmund Hillary. But it's Edmund Hillary's book is in print. Tenzing Norgay's is hard to find. And that's a better book. I actually think it's a really interesting book. So we those are those are my suggestions. That's it. Yeah, we have yeah. some reading ahead of us. And of course, your yeah. book, um, False Summit, Gender and Mountaineering Thanks. Nonfiction. Um, we'll make yeah. sure that we link your book and, and some of these sure. other titles in our show notes as well. 
Thank you. It's a real privilege to get to talk to you about this topic. And I know it's not your usual with extreme medical, but you know, it's extreme. It's very extreme and very important <laughs> and enlightening. And, and I just, what a wonderful conversation. And honestly, I, I probably will want to have you on again. And we need oh, to yeah. continue this, continue this narrative um, and ensure that, you know, there's equity for everyone um, in these kind of, you know, uh, sports. That sounds fantastic. I would be delighted. Thank you. Great. And I wish you well as you go out there, however fast or slow you go. You just That's go. right. That's, That's what right. I think. And I, one last important question. You mentioned the Olympics. What's the curling scene in Alberta? Oh, it's gonna... huge. Are you oh, kidding? And it, and yeah. Uh, it's, We're that so... has become one of my favorite sports of all time. And you're, so good. It's wonderful. <laughs> And uh, for those of you who've curling. never seen it, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's huge. Um, yeah. One of the things about curling is anybody can do it. So it's like, and there are curling rinks all over the place here. Like this is huge for us. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm excited for it. It's a great sport for TV too. Um, I'll be really sad that we don't all get to see the rabid curling fans with their, with their you know, foam hats um, right. on, you know, and their special outfits and everything. But at least we'll get some sense of it when we watch in the Olympics. I'm super excited for it. Oh, same. I, I, I schedule my day around curling, uh, skeleton, nice. and bobsled. Those are my... Oh, those are all the best sports. That's excellent. Skeleton. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, one of my students, uh, her partner is in the skeleton competition in the Olympics right now. He's from Alberta. And oh, wow. uh, so I'm, I know I, I think that whole sport is crazy. <laughs> so it's going to be good to watch it. it that and luge. I don't yeah, know. Luge, luge, yeah. <laughs> it's like luge isn't crazy enough. Let's make it even more dangerous and go head first. Um, Why not? Yeah. Great sport. Great sport. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be watching. And Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, that's our program. Uh, I thank you all for joining us. We look forward to you joining us again. Um, as we discuss wilderness and extreme medicine topics, uh, including gender inequity. Um, for more content like this, you can visit our website at worldextrememedicine.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at World Extreme Med and on Instagram at World Extreme Medicine. Uh, thank you again, Julie. It's been a pleasure. I hope to chat with you again sometime soon. Thank you. I would love to. It's been a real pleasure and an honor. Everybody get outside. Thank you so much. Thank you again. Stay warm, stay safe, and explore. Thank you, Julie. Yeah, thank you.